Welcome to First Generation Burn, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. This is the season premiere. Welcome, new listeners. We're doing a full 12, going for it just like old times. And also, we are back recording live at Canal Street Market, so it's going to sound amazing. And also, it's the best energy possible, having so much fun here back in studio. Today, we have an amazing guest. We're talking to Kim Pham, the co-founder of Amsam the famous sauce kit brand that's bringing Asian culture to the masses through community and activism. We talked to her about her upbringing as a first generation Vietnamese American, her founder's journey with Amsam, uh, and also how she and her sister Vanessa are fighting the good fight in the food aisle. Also, it's just a fun, energetic conversation and we go a bit crazy in the best way. I'm so excited for y'all to hear this. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Kim Pham. Kim, it's so good to see you. Welcome to First Generation Burden over here at Canal Street Market Listening Party Studio. For the listener, that was a second take, by the way, because I had to close the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm tired, but overall just kind of like rocking with it. I Amazing. think I'm entering a new season of my life, especially with the transition towards fall. So yes. I'm looking forward to just a little bit more stillness, she says, hungover <laughs> after two <laughs> nights out in a row. <laughs> All right. Well, that said, uh, let's start this conversation where we start every conversation. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Yeah, for sure. So I'm first gen Vietnamese American from Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, that's um, cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, my parents just ended up there and they're refugees from the Vietnam War. And so that was where I grew up. Um, I'm now the co-founder of Amsam, a proud and loud Asian food brand. I'm also a lifestyle dom and a BDSM educator. So truly multitudes. I want to dig into all of that. Well, <laughs> well first I want to hear about um, a little bit about your upbringing growing up in Boston. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, is there a Vietnamese community in Boston? There is. There's actually a pretty big one. So that's how my parents like kind of ended up there. There's kind of density yeah. um, in kind of a Vietnamese kind of refugee population. There's like a handful of pockets like that throughout the country, but yeah. they ended up in Boston. Were you born here or were you born? I was born here. Okay. Yeah. So for Shen, um, yeah. and you and your sister Vanessa. Yes, yeah. So she's two years younger than me. Gotcha. Um, More siblings? Other siblings? Just the two of us. Everyone always asks us that, and I'm like, damn. Like, can you imagine being another sibling and your two siblings like started a business and you're just like the third one hanging out? <laughs> um, yeah, growing up in Boston was a really. You're you... the Rob Kardashian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> That's so uh, oh. I don't know him as a human being, so. <laughs> No shade, no shade. Um, growing up in Boston was a really unique experience. I mean, so just to give you all some context, grew up in Boston, super white town. I think it was 98% white. Um, I'm the oldest of two siblings, the first in my family to go fully through the American school system, first gen, daughter of refugees. English was my second language. Like, Boston was not a very friendly place to grow up. Um, had just I think my childhood was really defined by lots of feelings of being other, of being different. I was constantly reminded of that. The town that I also grew up in was very, very conservative. Um, Irish, Italian, Catholic mm. um, vibes. Sure. Boston. Um, the town. Yeah. It, Boston can be a tough place if you are a person of color or different in any way. And like, yeah. not only am I daughter of refugees, I'm also queer. It was just a really tough place to kind of grow up in. And I don't think I really fully realized that until I kind of got out and was like, oh, wow, like, I've really been stifling and muting and diluting many parts of my identity because mm -hmm. I had to like survive. 
Um, and so, yeah, left Boston and don't have, don't have much love for that city. Um, <laughs> but my parents are still there. So I, I, I did, you know, I, I did have a very happy overall childhood. Sure. Um, just, you know, Celtics fan. Do you care? No, Red she's Sox not fan? a sports girl. Copy that. <laughs> but you are a pop culture savant, right? I, kind of, sort of? I, I would say I'm... We were I'm, talking about the MCU like for <laughs> for a hot second. I would say I'm like chronically online and made of the internet, which one could say is very much driven by pop culture. But yeah, I would say I'm an internet kid first. Like Made on the internet. Yeah, like that. I mean, for me, like the internet was where I found belonging and community for at a very young age. Like I wasn't super cool in school, so I was hanging out on like Zanga and LiveJournal, MySpace. Yeah, I'm dating myself right now. Fun fact, you used to run a guild on Neopets. Like, that's how fucking dorky I was. Whoa. I am. am. Yeah. Whoa. I can't believe that you were on Zanga because, <laughs> I mean, you're you're 30, but Zanga, you, were you 10 years old on Zanga? I was, like, probably 12. Wow. But, like, cosplaying as, like, a 16-year-old white girl. It was wild. The oh internet my God. was a wild place. I remember journaling on Zanga, but, I mean, I'm older. I'm turning 41 in November. You look great. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. <gasps> Yellow don't mellow. Oh, well, you know... <laughs> I've never heard that one. I mean, Asian don't raisin, of course. I've heard that. Uh, yellow don't mellow. Wow. Um, I, yeah, I was on Zanga in college, mm. and then that's when I started like blogging, journaling yes. in a public space. And then I, a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, should I try to look those posts up? <laughs> Do so you? I know. Well, I, I hope that Zanga is like not even a thing anymore because. Uh, I couldn't find them, thankfully. Mm. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of glad. Like I I was really angsty. Yeah, on, like, same. Live journal, just like I was also like a like, full. Like who is this person? Yeah, no, I was like a full warp tour sad boy. Like wow, you know, drinking monster in the mall parking lot, kissing boys, just like smoking cigarettes. Sure. My parents were super proud. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely the problem child growing up, but yeah, I just I grew up on the internet. Yeah, what does that I, look like? Is that all like a lot of Limp Bizkit and Good Charlotte? <laughs> it was. Um, Blink-182 Blink and Berlin. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, TBT. Um, so, yeah, I just, like, found belonging and subculture. And that's, yes. like, that That was honestly the start of it for me was, like, I became obsessed with finding subcultures and subcommunities, and the Internet completely drove that. And the, so I would say that that was, like, the formative kind of thing that made yeah. me the person that I am today. Well, in relation to Ansem specifically, I'd love <laughs> to hear a little, little bit about your food experience growing yeah. up and also the connection to family community and food and what the what that was like as a kid because as i'm a filipino first-gen filipino so a lot of my food experiences were you know fried lumpia crispy mm. pata pancit bulaklak like a lot yeah. of this fried rich food but enjoyed family style yeah. but also you know we would have our Toasty log breakfast on occasion, maybe kind of sort of if I was a cousin at a cousin's house, but we'd yeah. replace the Tocino for spam or something. Mm, <laughs> you know, it was yeah. a very specific memories. Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, food was huge. It was everything to my family. It still is. I think that's why Vanessa and I are so passionate about food. But I think for me, what food represents is something more than just sustenance. It's actually a vehicle and a carrier of culture and of history. And when I think about you know, my Vietnamese American identity. Like I, I left home at 17. I came to New York City, I went to NYU. And I thought, of, you what know- What was your major? Um, I studied marketing and computer science, left and right brain. Um, when I thought about like re-engaging with my Vietnamese identity away from my family, away from the language, away from relatives, food was, food was it. Food was how I began to kind of re-engage with that identity and remind myself of, oh, I, 
this is this is home and even if I'm away from it it's deeply powerful and profound for me and so yeah my family was one of those families where it didn't matter what you did every single night we had dinner together it didn't matter how late you know soccer practice went or if my dad was held up at work we had to sit around the dinner table and eat a three-course Vietnamese meal like that was my classic meal growing up was my mom made like a soup there was some rice maybe like a meat or a pork um, and some veggies and we had that every night and actually I grew up quite embarrassed of it I oh weird food kid yeah oh my god energy I had the same thing I was just like oh man also did your parents cook as well yes okay every night um and we always ate Vietnamese food and I remember missing like I'm like, oh, my friends get to eat like chicken nuggets. Like, why does our house always smell like fish sauce? Like, there's yes. so much yes. shame, honestly, associated with it. And so it makes sense to me that as an adult, I would want to return to my roots in a really proud and loud way by starting Amsom. Wow. Um, you're just touching on so many things. Like, the, <laughs> I, we, I've talked about it on this podcast before, like being the weird food kid that would, that yeah. would have the bag of wet food that <laughs> at school when yeah. everyone else has a super traditional uh sandwiches uh this place is about to burn down everybody so i hope that um hope everyone's okay (laughs) this is hella loud i don't know if the microphones are even catching this but listener there is insanely loud um siren outside that has actually not stopped yet it's still going (laughs) i think we're better yeah, insanely loud and New York City traffic keeping it out there. <laughs> but yeah, no, like the the food shame is a real thing for kids, especially Asian kids. I think that's one of the prime reasons for feeling like othered yeah. in school. Totally. You know, so there isn't a sense of pride about it. And also it's um, it, it's stigmatizing. And I think the, what Amsam is doing now is not just it's normalizing and celebrating yeah. in a really interesting way. Thank you. Yeah, I mean. I think a lot of immigrant kids have this like lunchbox story or like cafeteria story. For me, I literally remember I brought in rice with like jabong, which is essentially like a, a dried pork floss. And it's really tasty. It's like the salty, tasty, wonderful thing you have with rice and maybe some fish sauce if you'd like. And I remember this kid, Greg, like looked at it and was like, oh, my God, Kim's eating cat hair. And it literally fucking Greg, fucking Greg. Right. <laughs> and it traumatized me. And like I now as an adult have the vernacular and words to say that was a trauma. But yeah. at the time I didn't understand. I was just like, holy shit, I'm weird. I'm different. My family's different. You know, we're, we look different and I don't go to Sunday school. I don't go to church. Like my family, my parents were never around to go to like games and stuff because they were both working full-time jobs, like immigrant hustle. Right. Yeah. So what'd your parents do? Uh, my father is an engineer and mm-hmm. my mother worked at like a local newspaper in town. Okay. Oh, really? Doing yeah. what? Um, like accounting, I think. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. But, you know, they were doing their fucking best, and I'm so grateful for them. But when you're a child, you don't understand all of these things. You're just like, oh, we're different and we're weird. And I held a lot of kind of anger towards my parents because they didn't let us be, like, quote, unquote, normal, a.k.a. white kids. Mm. And, and now I'm like, oh, my God, that, I'm so glad they protected that. Oh, my God, yeah. But it took me a long time to return to that. I identity. feel like that's a common story, especially for first-gen immigrant kids. It's the mm. the rebellion or their version of rebellion sure. is rebellion against culture and yeah. then absorbing 
like, you know, a globalized thought, a, a secular thought on religion. Like, I, I grew yeah. up super religious, mm. um, you know, stuff like that. And then returning to it on your own terms. Yes, on your own terms. Yeah. And like with full agency. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your founder's journey. So <laughs> tell me, tell the listener and myself, yeah. um, how, how did Amsam come into you and Vanessa's life? Yeah, so I've been in startups since I was 16. I love, love taking companies from zero to one as opposed to one to 100. I've never worked for a company larger than 20 people. Like I fucking love startups. So yeah. I've known my whole life that I wanted to start my own business, but I was honestly just waiting for the idea and waiting for the right partner. And I've, we always joke that Amsam is like, you know, 20 plus years in the making because I always knew that Vanessa was going to be my co-founder. Mm -hmm. We're best friends, we have deep love and trust, but we're super different. Mm -hmm. Like. Vanessa's the dream immigrant kid. She's ex-Harvard, ex-Bain, super disciplined, very left brain, hyper strategic and analytical and data driven. And then I'm like the right brain weirdo, like creative internet kid. Yeah, um, but the trust levels are, yes. yes. So I was just like, honestly waiting for her to build up her risk tolerance, honestly. Cause I think Vanessa, you know, she went to Harvard and then became a management consultant at one of the best companies in the world. Like she had to kind of go on her own journey to get to a place where she would want to feel comfortable to start something. And I think the inflection point for us was honestly the 2016 election. God. I think I know. Yeah. Personal moral. We've, those, we both those felt, everyone's inflection was, point. Oof. Yeah. I think her and I both just felt personal moral emergencies around kind of the state of the world. And we're yes. like, okay, how can we create change and impact in our lane? And right now our lane feels like Asian culture, Asian flavors, Asian identity. Mm -hmm. Like how can we build something that can celebrate and, and honestly reclaim yes. some of these stories for ourselves. And so what businesses had you been a part of before this? Um, tons like baby little startups, like nothing you've ever heard of, you know, like just, I really enjoyed in food category. No, like mostly on the consumer side. Um, so I spent a lot of time like building brand and community at different kind of small companies. And then I actually spent the last four years before Amazon working in venture capital. Cause I was like, Oh, if I'm going to go start a company, I want to go see what the best ones look like. Um, wow. so I did that in That's Europe for four years. Where then, in Europe? Uh, Dublin and London. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then came back to New York in a very long, windy way and then yeah Vanessa and I were just like let's just start jamming on this nights and weekends and then there came a point where we we're like fuck it we gotta like full send on this yeah and so she quit her job and then we what started was her working. job at the time she was a management consultant at Bain oh okay yeah, right, yeah. and so I put my entire life savings <laughs> into Amsom it was really hard it's still very hard but it was really hard in the early days because did you find funding too not for the first like year and a half we were just, it was my, I was the funding. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I put, I saved up some money. Obviously I'm two years older than Vanessa. So I had a couple more years on her in terms of like salary. And I put all of that into the business. Her and I don't come from generational wealth. Like we're daughters of refugees. So right. um, I didn't have like a rich uncle who could write me a chill, you know, 200 grand. So even our starting point as founders was really different from, I'd say like the average, like white Stanford bro yeah. who comes from legacy and comes from generational wealth where his starting point is different. So yeah. that was like a hard learned lesson. We're like, <laughs> oh shit, inequity like shows up in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, and that was really clear to us when we started the business. Uh, so the name Amsam, <laughs> it's a Vietnamese phrase. It is. Yeah. Meaning noisy, rambunctious, riotous. Yeah. How did that name come to you? 
Or was that always in Yeah, there? so this is actually kind of a funny story. So when we first started the business, we had no idea what it was going to look like, but I actually called, I named the business, it was called Oxtail, O-X-T-A-L-E. Because one, I love oxtail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I grew up on oxtail. Yep. Um, a lot of communities of color have yep. oxtail in their food. Yep. Yeah. Um, and Strong I love Caribbean connection. Yes. Too. And Korean like oxtail yeah. soups. Like it's typically, I think, perceived as like a lot of it's these like, like a throwaway food to yeah, a lot of cultures. Quote unquote throwaway. Quote unquote. Um, when actually I think it's dank and delicious. I fucking love <laughs> oxtail and. I'll I'll eat the sh I'll lick the shit out of the bone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I I like it. it was kind of like an if you know you know sort of thing. And yeah. then T A L E because I think food is a carrier of narratives and of culture. So yes. we started it. We were like, all right, this, we're running, we're working on oxtail. And then we started pitching folks. And we I remember we spoke to a couple execs at Mars, and they're like super cool. Mars, the owners of M and M. Yes, 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 big food, big kind of food corporation, CPG brand. Yes. And they're like, oxtail's cool, love it. But when we look at that, doesn't sound like a Mars brand. Yeah, but they were like, when we when we look at that word, it it conjures up this idea of like jerky, and oh. and I think you know when we, we when when I have the the bandwidth to tell this story or like sorry the real estate to tell this story, everyone gets it. But if I'm a customer, I have five seconds to understand a product on the shelf. I'm gonna look at oxtail and think it's a meat product. Right. And I think some of what we're trying to do is really showcase the multitudes in Asian food. Um, and so we were like, all right, we got we to gotta move away from that. So we came to Omsom because, yeah, I love Omsom. It's, that's the phrase that it comes from. It's actually a negative phrase. My parents actually used to yell at Vanessa and I for like rattling around in the back of the car. Oh, it's like you're being crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like, stop. Like, you're being ratchet, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and I love the idea of reclaiming something that is perceived to be negative and taking it and giving a middle finger to the model minority myth that really flattens and reduces a lot of Asian American communities. We're like, what if we were rowdy? Like, what if we're a little OTT and in your face? So then, yeah, we made, we took Omsom and made it Omsom. Um, so it's kind of the anglicized um, version of that word. And that's a very intentional nod to our third culture roots. Wow. Like we didn't want to be a Vietnamese brand and we get hella flack from Vietnamese communities who are like, well, you can't even say the word right. And I'm like, cause I'm not trying to, I'm right. not trying to make this a Vietnamese, like OG right. motherland brand. We're trying to do something third culture. Yeah. Wow. That's how was born. I love that. <laughs> so uh, what was the starter pack category at the time? It wasn't even a category because <laughs> I think it? the offering's so unique. And I feel <laughs> now that other brands have started to copy that or take notice. And yeah. yeah, so what did the landscape even look like? It's, it's such a unique offering. Um, it, I do think we were kind of like a category, like a, a new, we created a new category. Yeah, so I think did. there was definitely like jarred sauces, right? Yes. Or there were dry, oh, that's fair. dry seasoning mixes, but there was never like a one-stop shop, like one little packet with all the aromatic spices, seasonings, oils that you need. So in our, in our mind, it was kind of like, all right, we're taking... We're tackling essentially the number one problem that people have when it comes to cooking Asian food. We don't struggle with getting chicken or bok choy. We struggle with getting the foundational flavor right. Because like, I'm Vietnamese, I cook so much Asian food. But when I cook a new dish, I have to like go get seven or eight different sauces or jars. I use a tablespoon of each and then it sits in the back of my fridge. And for a lot of people, especially those who aren't Asian, feel a lot of intimidation around getting all of those individual sauces, spices, aromatics, etc. Right. 
and then even having the confidence to be able to cook at home. So we're like, let's just tackle that. We're not going to be a meal kit. We're not going to, you know, right, add all the other stuff. Kit. It's not. It's literally a starter packet, like, sauce, essentially. Yeah. Think My like hamburger helper, but like bougie and Asian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because hamburger helper doesn't come with a hamburger. No. Yeah. You add your own. Um, so my first interaction with the brand, um, someone from your Instagram handle reached out like two years ago, like in the middle of the pandemic, I was like, hey, do you want to try this? Oh, cool. Yeah, and then I got the East Asian sampler. Yeah. And well, one, I was like uh, amazed by the design. I, I <laughs> thought it was so beautiful. And also so disruptive <laughs> in the best ways that I like, like the high energy, just yeah. like look at me right now. And I just <laughs> couldn't turn away. I had also felt very Southeast Asian, which I love. Mm. Um, and then, and I'm not a cooker, by the way. <laughs> I am the worst at it, <laughs> I admit. And then I had the, uh, I did the Korean spicy bulgogi and I was like, this yeah. is great. Yay. Yeah, so no, I, I really enjoyed it. So this so is cool. So happy to hear that. Yeah. So when it came to like creating the literally the the process of yeah. because the the raw materials to do what you need to do to and also cut way into a category that doesn't exist yeah. what did it look like what were the barriers of creating a pipeline that never existed before um oh my god i'm like do you I, have seven hours i was about to say <laughs> i was like i just realized I'll, I'll how and, intense that conversation i'll try that and do be. like the tldr of it so yeah. um the struggles were one bonker supply chain because right. we hold ourselves to such a high bar. We source 90 plus percent of our specialty ingredients directly from Asia. That means my supply chain is bonkers because we're not using easily found commercially available chili, right? Yeah. We're sourcing our, we're sourcing Thai chili from Thailand. We're sourcing gochuguru from Korea. Everything is directly from the country of origin because I can taste the difference. There's, so, we talked to so many people in the beginning of this journey who are like, just use the commercially available Chinese chili. No one's going to notice. And I'm like, people are going to fucking notice. Yeah. Especially like, and honestly, frankly, as a Asian American, I don't feel good about putting out a product that I can't like co-sign. Yeah. Um, and so bonker supply chain, because we're trying to do things with cultural integrity, a lot of customer education, because not, no one knows what a starter is. And there is some sort of education that we have to do around like, all right, so it's, it's not a dry seasoning mix, but it's not like a, a diluted sauce. Like you have to use, one packet per X amount of protein. So there is that sort of education. And then I'd also say in the early days, a lot of people didn't believe that a proud and loud Asian food brand should exist. They were like, hey, look, like, you don't really want to be exclusionary. Like, right. you know, you want to make this friendly to all, AKA palatable to white people, right? Like that's the context there. And they're like, I don't know if you should be talking about the fetishization of Asian women. I don't know if you should be talking about MSG and the ethnic aisle. I don't even think you should have MSG in your products. Like a lot of folks just right. were like- David Chang talks about the <laughs> the benefits of MSG. Yeah, Oh, I, I mean, we just I dropped a MSG. product. We just dropped a product this week all about MSG. Oh yeah, no, MSG is dope. Yeah, but like we, you know, I want to use Omsom as a carrier for me to live out my values out loud as an individual. Yeah. And that means talking about stuff that maybe people don't want to, didn't want us to talk about in the beginning. They were like, look, Think about it, Kim. You're trying to reach the largest TAM, which means that you need to be for all. What's TAM? Um, total addressable market. Mm. And Is that a marketing term? I should have probably known that. I, I think. Yeah. It's like a business term, I guess, mostly with investors. And, and they're just like, you want to be for all. And I firmly believe as a brand builder that as a brand, if you are for everyone, you are actually for no one. Like if you try and 
dilute yourself to the lowest common denominator. You don't stand for shit. No one knows what you rep. Right. No one knows what you stand for. And so I was like, nah, like I'm going to be ride or die for Asian Americans. Yep. And that's reflected in our hope. Like, like you said, our packaging, our words that we use. Yeah. Vanessa and I being a part of the story. We yeah. are unapologetically Asian American. Right. And you're like the faces of it. Yeah. It's kind of weird. We weren't supposed to be at all. Oh, really? We did not. When we started Omsom, we and like we launched, we were like, oh, you know, we'll be there. Yeah. Um, but we. You have like a little helper module on the bottom yeah. right. <laughs> what we learned. So well, I, on the bottom right of your website. I was like, this is so interesting. When we launched, we were like, let's make it about our chefs. So for all of our products, we partner with an Asian chef of that background. They're oh, paid a royalty cool. fee. That's cool. Like there, we're like, we're, we're going to make it the chef story. And then we found when we launched, like journalists kept wanting to interview Founder Vanessa. Founder story is way more interesting. I had no, I did not, this, that was not something I ever could have expected. Like Vanessa and I are deeply passionate, enthusiastic, skilled home cooks, but we're not chefs. So I was quite confused when people are like, we want to talk to you. And I think it just became more about like what values Vanessa and I have yeah. and, and it how helps we live that out loud. You're charismatic too. Are we? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this conversation is going terribly, obviously. So <laughs> <laughs> It just was never meant to be the Kim and Vanessa fam show at all. Sure. Um, but Although, the Kim and Vanessa fam show <laughs> is something that I think your fandom might turn into or, or you know, turn up for. I, it's wild because, like, we're nobody. We're, I mean, like, mm, I like we're just, like, smart, kind people who I think are just trying to do good. Like, yeah. I don't, I guess I don't think that's particularly interesting. Um, but I do think maybe people see in us. I don't know. Your PR team probably has something to pitch on the front. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I gotta talk. I gotta talk to them about that. Yeah, it's funny. I was watching um, the the ride with me episode he did yeah. for Thrillist. I well, one, I, it's interesting that the content of the pandemic, because <laughs> your your face is on an iPad. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is so. It's kind of funny, but also your charisma comes through Aww. even though you're not physically in the space with the host <laughs> yeah right but a couple of things that i thought were interesting well one is uh we live in i live in bushwick too cool so Ichiran ramen's like Hell yeah. down the street from me also mood ring yes yeah like uh, like the the level of um how you bring the asian story and mm. the asianness in such a in a way that feels so much about community mm. and none of it feels forced mm. or like oh um like the i don't feel like you are educating someone in a way that they don't want to be it's more just like this mm. is a vibe this is joy yeah let's just talk about it mm. you know yeah that's an interesting reflection um because like mood ring is it's based on like wong kar wai movies yeah. but like it's not an asian spot yeah i think what i my goal with Amsam and I think arguably even my life is that I want to showcase the multitudes in Asian America. I yeah. think for so long we've been pitched a very singular, largely East Asian, if I'm being honest, mm -hmm. a view of Asianness. It's the boba liberalism. It's anime. Yeah. It's very specific. And I think what we're trying to do with Amsam is like crack it open and crack be it like wide open. You can. There's no one right way to be Asian American. And I know that there. We like to kind of joke about the doctor lawyer thing and the you know, my parents were brutal to me thing. And, and I think that's important. And I think we have shared experiences around yeah. that. Sure. My brutal doctor parents are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also, I'm just like, first off, that's a very singular, arguably exclusionary view of Asian Americana. 100%. And when we don't allow ourselves multitudes, we make it okay for other communities to do the same back yeah. to us. It's like a diasporic thought. Yeah. Very open. I just like, just want to like fucking break it open. So yeah, for me, it's like my Asianness is not 
a wedge on which I build my identity. It is the perspective that I view my whole life yeah. through. So I don't want to perform singular one-sided views of Asian-ness. I'm, I'm, I am Asian and that's just it. 100%. You know? What's your definition of comfort food? Um, hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, foods that just mean something bigger to me and that harken back to my childhood, like yeah. that bring me nostalgia. Yeah. Um, there is a nostalgic piece to it, right? Yes, I think so. Like, I think there is like some sort of like decadence when I think about comfort food. Oh, really? Um, yeah, like when I think of comfort, I think of like my pork belly that I grew up on oh, or like yeah. a big comforting bowl of bunbahoy, and that is decadent. It's yeah. rich. Yeah, like a rich food. But I, I do think it has to do more with nostalgia than it does have to do with the dish itself. Interesting. Yeah. How big is the team at Amsam right now? We are 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. Feels like it's bigger than that. Really? Yeah. And you're in all Whole Foods now, which is wild. Yes, every single Whole Foods in the nation. Yeah, what shelf is that? We are in the international aisle, which okay. I have many feels about. Yeah, tell us, a, I would love to hear about that. Cause like, what shelf do you belong on? Oh, again, I'm like, do we have four hours? Um, <laughs> so funnily enough, the quote unquote ethnic aisle is, Ugh, a, I, I know. That. Yeah. It's a very big part of how Vanessa and I started the business. Yeah. I was just like, I hate this aisle. I yeah. hate that it's like this, it's in the middle of the store. It gets no love. It's a hodgepodge of ingredients across many cuisines. You have you have Sazon sitting next to fish sauce, sitting next to black eyed peas, sitting next to jerk seasoning. It, like, it just actually doesn't make much sense. Right, But it's from a, a culinary perspective. From a culinary perspective. Makes no sense. It's also just a reflection of the way that, an outdated view on America and yes. how Americans eat. It's like, the rest of the store is quote unquote normal and then you have this separate other aisle. Yeah. That's gonna take decades and generations to unlearn that sort of consumer behavior. It's literally been around since I think the 1940s. Mm. Basically the ethnic aisle was born from soldiers returning back from the war, having had exposure to international flavors and starting this aisle in the modern supermarket. So I have, I have feels on it. I, I think I would, in my, there's no, you know, silver bullet correct answer to this, but in my dream world, I think I would want products in the ethnic aisle to be located in the functional aisle where they should be, right? So, like, I think rice noodles should sit in the pasta noodle aisle. Mm -hmm. I think omsom as a sauce and seasoning should be in the seasoning aisle where you might get, like, garlic powder or cumin, right? Right. But it, right now, we're just, unfortunately, we have to kind of live within the realities of what is an institution, because that's what grocery stores are. Yeah. They're institutions that have been around since the 1940s. So we have to kind of play within their rules. Mm -hmm. But I know that we are doing a ton of work. Like we were actually interviewed by the New York Times yeah. in print about the ethnic aisle. So yeah. I think there's progress being made and we're obviously as a brand looking for more opportunities to kind of be out of that ethnic aisle. Yeah. Because it does also like, the location of the ethnic aisle is not highly trafficked. It's in the middle of the store usually. People, right. you know, when they go in supermarkets, go around the edges. What are the parameters that actually establish what ethnic yeah. food is? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Look at who's making the rules. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's say if Amsam, I'm just posing like a theory, like yeah. if, if Amsam created a. a if you had a, a coffee offering mm -hmm. from Colombia yeah. and we just shifted category. Would that still be the ethnic aisle? Like, what? How do? What are the rules? There, it's it's very vague because it's very interesting to me because there are a lot of quote unquote ethnic 
Like who who gets to decide who what decides? is quote unquote ethnic? Yeah. And also it's really interesting that Bezos? like <laughs> um I mean it's weird because Greek food, Italian food has largely kind of come out of the ethnic so it's basically if I were to describe it, it's non European yes. communities of color. Yes. It's it, it's a racialized aisle. It is. Yeah. And yes. it's just it it's so curious to me, like how this is still a thing. Um, but it is. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I mean that's where we're at. I we're fighting the fight. That's crazy. We're trying to. It's very hard. It's I imagine. introducing constant friction. Living yeah. our values introduces constant friction to what we do. Wow. And you're you're introducing new products all the time. Like I'm looking at uh, the CC starter. I'm like, yeah. yo. We work with Nicole Fonseca on that. She's incredible. Oh wow. Yeah, she's okay. James Beard nominated cookbook author. Yeah. yeah Shout out rad. to Jeepney. R.I.P. Yeah, I always love Jeepney. Yeah. She was like, such. She is such a trailblazer. I yeah. mean, Maharlika before that. Of yeah, course. Just, yeah. Yeah. Boss bitch. Damn. <laughs> um. So what? What? You're a lifestyle dom. What does that mean? <laughs> Um, so I'm not a pro dominatrix. I'm a lifestyle dom. Um, it's something I got into. I got into BDSM about five, six years ago um, because I think, uh, honestly, around the same time I started OMSOM, I was basically just realizing, wow, there's a lot of norms that have been socialized in my life. Mm -hmm. And I've been kind of playing by them without questioning them. Yeah. And what does it mean for me as I'm starting OMSOM and this proud and loud Asian food brand? Like, what are parts of me that are I would want to, like, kind of excavate and also be proud and loud about. So around this time I also came out and then around this time was like, oh, play and pleasure and sexuality, very taboo topic within our communities. Yes, within the Asian community yes. specifically. Specifically, and yes. then especially as a femme person, so many of the messages that I received from porn, from movies, from media growing up is that the bodies and sexualities of Asian women are meant to be reaped and harvested largely by white men. Right. And that traces back it's like the the cis heteronormative white male gaze. Yes, but it, it it's deeply actually has roots in history, right? Yeah. Like oftentimes for after kind of like this the um Silk Road opened up, a lot of the West's first interaction with Asian women were oftentimes in context of sex work. And you see this and then they brought home back these ideals of Asian women being these like either seductive enchantresses or like these like China dolls meant to be like these submissive little creatures. And I think, you know, that trickles down over generations and generations. And I know that as a young person in Boston, Massachusetts, I was like, oh, like starting to have, you know, sexual interactions with people. I was like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be this way. I think I'm supposed to be submissive because that's so much of the story that we get. And I think when I started Omsom, I was like, is that like what's true to me? And so I was like, maybe I think I want to understand what it's like to source for my feminine dominance. Yeah. And also being Kim Pham, I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. So yeah. I started taking courses. I started taking classes. I started training alongside pro doms in the city um, and realizing like, oh, shit, this is a craft. This is not just like whips and chains like what yeah. you see in porn. It's actually deeply human and takes skill. So then I started learning. Yeah. And but pro means that there is financial gain. Yeah. Like it's like a job. Yeah. It's yeah, your it's job. A jo yeah. Um, but then lifestyle is more for pleasure. I know, yeah, I know it is pleasure, yeah, but yeah, also... Yeah, it's like for fun. Like, I, yeah. I do it. It's like a hobby for me. Gotcha. Um, one I'm very passionate about. Um, Omsom is obviously my whole ass <laughs> job. Um, but I think what was... What started me to kind of, like, become an educator and create my TikTok is because I realized, like, oh, man, BDSM is such a black box. There's so much misinformation. There's so many stereotypes and tropes. 
and I really, I just want to create a world where we can have open conversation and communication around mm-hmm. BDSM in like a healthy, consent-driven, um, really ethical way. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, let me just like start this TikTok and start making videos and content. And the second I did it, I was like bombarded with emails from Asian women being like, oh my God, I didn't, I like thought this was weird or I thought that like this part of me was weird. I have so much shame around it. I don't know how to talk to my partner about it. And it made me realize like, oh man, there's a lot of need yeah. for like ethical, inclusive, intentional content around BDSM. Can I ask this real, let me know if this is an offside question. Is there a connection between lifestyle, doming, and uh, sexual preference? Mm. Or is that can lifestyle doming, does that make sense? In terms, because like, if there's no financial gain associated with it, uh-huh. there, and it's more for pleasure, and if pleasure is there's it connected to sexual preference, does lifestyle doming mean that it's towards the queer end of the spectrum? Does that do you know what I mean? Yeah, not not necessarily. I think. I think first off, you can engage in BDSM actually without any sexual interaction. Sure. Um, for me, the reason I clarify lifestyle dom is because sex work is work. Sex work is absolutely real. 100%. And I'm not trying to co-opt from professionals. Like sure. I know that I have a lot of privilege, frankly, yeah. by being a lifestyle dom. And I'm just asking questions from a person that yeah. wants to know. <laughs> yeah. General curiosity. So um, I just think... Yeah, that that for me is the only reason I make that distinction. Really, sure. is I just don't want to co-opt from sex workers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's necessarily a connection between sexual preference. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. Hmm. Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know of. I guess I, it's more on the individual side, I suppose. Yeah. It's like yeah. however it like interacts in your life. Yeah, I think in general I seek non-normative ways of living. Yeah. Um, I guess. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. I am just seeking truth and authenticity on an individual level. Mm. And that means looking at all parts of me clearly. And yeah. that that's like what helped me start Omsom. That's what helped me realize I'm bi. That's what helped me realize I'm kinky. Yeah. Is making space for my truth in all of the ways. How do you find time? I don't. I'm yeah. dead all the time. <laughs> do you sleep a lot? What's your sleep like? I sleep maybe like six hours, but my family's like this. Like my my dad can't sleep more than like five six hours. Really? So I've been like this my whole life. And is Vanessa like this too? Vanessa is a little bit more intentional about rest and stillness. Mm-hmm. I'm like an extrovert's extrovert. Sure. And I'm always on one. You know, <laughs> just. On for one. for the listener, this is the first time me and Kim have ever. The third time you and I have ever interacted. <laughs> the first time was I bumped into you at Ludlow House mm-hmm. and I approached you I was like, hey, you're the co-founder of Omsom, come on the podcast. <laughs> then saw you last night, same place, but every time it's been high energy. But also the, <laughs> the thing that I, I'm enjoying is I also like high energy. Yeah. So like, love going to Mood Ring. When I was watching the video, I was like, oh yeah, I love Mood Ring. I've definitely <laughs> been there in like four in the morning, yeah. like in that crazy back, back room. room. Yeah, and yeah, no, it, there's a lot of the how does one came up in the previous conversation that we had today? <laughs> it's like, how does one find the time yeah. for wellness, stillness, mental health, but still function at a high level? Yeah. At the at scale. I, I think it's about what feeds you. And I know I, I get a lot of energy from other people. I have lived my whole life drinking from the fire hose is the best way for me to describe mm-hmm. it. Like I love that. I just want like, I just want to experience the richness and the fullness of the human experience. So that's why I, people say I'm on one is because that's, that, that's what gives me energy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was talking to my therapist earlier this morning and she was like, what does like 
re like rest look for you? And I think I've had long this oh, wow. idea what of a question. I know. And I think I've long had this idea of like, well, I don't know, whenever I see wellness videos or whatever, it's always people like sitting at home, having a coffee, doing their yoga, like stillness. And I'm like, I actually don't know if that's rest for me. I actually think rest for me is intentional time spent with friends. Maybe that's out. Yeah. Maybe that's at a coffee shop. Maybe that's eating a nice meal. But I don't want to prescribe that rest only looks one way for people because that means that we don't all rest the same way. We don't all get energy the same way. So, of course, we're not going to rest the same way. Mm -hmm. So rest for me, I think, is just being a little bit more intentional about my time. Mm -hmm. It's being cool with solo walks. Um, but it doesn't mean sitting at my home sleeping personally. For me. Yeah, no, same. <laughs> I find now that at this point in my life, when I'm resting or finding times to intentionally not do anything, mm -hmm. which usually now defaults into me watching reality TV or something. <laughs> I, before I was like, oh, I, I feel like I have to enjoy intellectual culture mm. or I have to be intentional about mm. absorbing data information <laughs> and learning and I'm still very much like that sure but then now I'm acknowledging that learning also um, takes many forms yeah and also uh, absorption of culture takes many forms yeah. and there isn't uh, a premium or sophisticated way right. to do it yep um, you can still be a, a sponge and also output at a high level. Yeah. You know, like I, if I can just watch TV and watch Real Housewives in New Jersey <laughs> and see Teresa Judice just like go wild. <laughs> uh, but I'm still I still feel like I'm learning. I mean, but, the, you know, those I was a different guy 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. There's multitudes in it all. Yeah. Right. No, totally. Um, what are you consuming right now? Like how? Well, so going back to the relaxing thing, like from a cultural standpoint, like what do you actually enjoy? Um, I live and breathe on TikTok. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a creator myself, I'm always on TikTok, but I, yeah. I genuinely am so excited by the conversations being had on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Like everyone always shits on Gen Z, but the vernacular that they have access to, the sort of understanding and reflection that is prioritized around all things like right. gender, race, identity, culture. Deep I'm, dives. Yeah. I'm with so excited. Yeah. I'm just so excited by that. Like it took me. 26 years to realize that I'm queer and there are children in Idaho who can go on TikTok and understand terms like non-binary or AFAB and I'm, that's so fucking rad that we're as a society creating this generation of folks who have access to understanding themselves in this way like I love that um, yeah so I'm just I'm, I'm doing a lot on TikTok I, I think it's definitely obviously dopamine fucking central just like yeah. Um, what else am I I spend a lot of time in like subcultures. So in addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I literally have like a little group of friends where we go to all the movies, midnight premieres. We record really? a, We actually record a podcast. Oh, about um, movies? About, yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> it's it's really small and it's not like we don't share it publicly. It's literally just for our little friend group. But Wow, um, that's really cool. I'm also super into Are AS you a comic nerd? Not comics, mostly the Is MCU. Yeah. Really? But like I watch all the shows. I'm yeah. like in all of the lore. I'm also super into Star Wars. What was your take on She-Hulk? Um, fun fact, have not watched it yet because I oh. want to sit down and like blitz through it. Okay. Yeah, it's a fast watch. Yeah. It's a fast watch. Um, I'm Did super you like Andor? Did you watch Andor? Yes. I love Andor. But I also think, hot take, Rogue One is the best standalone Star Wars film. I said it. Well, I mean, okay, so. Hot. Spicy. If we were, <laughs> if, if we were to take the definition of standalone Star Wars <laughs> film, then 
Rogue One. It's only Rogue One and Solo. It's, well, I meant like I guess. Oh, like or film experience. It better than um, uh, what, oh shit, what the second one? The one with the oh god, where they're on Hoth and then episode Carbonite, episode five. five. Yeah, Return to the Jedi. No, I think as Jedi. a singular Empire Strikes Back. Rogue One is better than Empire Strikes Back. There, I found my words. What? Yes. Really? I think as a singular piece <sighs> of work. A singular cinematic experience, yes. I think Rogue One is stellar. Stellar. It's stellar. It's, it's definitely stellar. stellar. Well, what a controversial hot take. I know. <laughs> I mean, I love, obviously, the original trilogy will always be it. Yes. But that's because I think. And by that, you mean um, episodes one to three. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to flip this table. Um, but Sorry. I love them as like. It's a, trolling. There's like the three of them together there's context there's storylines that go through all like i love right. that but when i think about if i have two hours finite story i just want rogue one it's standalone i don't need wow. to watch the others i don't need to it's just on its own yeah wow so yeah. interesting yeah okay <laughs> well I, I guess you know what i love about rogue one this podcast taking a turn what i love about <laughs> rogue one is that uh, uh, cinematically and also stylistically yeah. from an art direction standpoint yeah. and also like set design standpoint it completes the thought mm. of the original trilogy mm. you know in yeah. a way that uh, Force Awakens didn't mm. Force mm. Awakens was very much the a replication of the mm. storyline and the same type of journey yeah but then Rogue One was like the true universe build yeah like let's actually step yeah take one step to the left and mm. see this part Mm. You know, mm. I would think that even um, the the Ewok films kind of did that, too. I'm not saying that they were good, <laughs> but th taking the logical thought of the world build where we can go, you know, to a world like Endor and see. I don't know if you watch those mm. those terrible TV movies <laughs> where this family mm. um, crash landed on Endor. And then the son and the daughter had to fight for the lives of their parents and oh. go on this, a new hero's quest, mm. but with the Ewoks. Oh. And then fight a big-ass spider. <laughs> and then the second one, Return to Endor, somehow the family's just dead. And then it's like a total bummer. It, it was like, why, why is this happening? Rip. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, that's cool about the pop culture thing. So, yeah, I mean, I like, I'm, I... I love going deep on really niche things. Like yeah. I'm super into ASMR, uh -huh. the Marvel Cinematic Universe, BDSM. Yeah. For a long time, it was like pop punk, warp tour vibes. Like, yeah. I just think there's such beauty when people nerd out on really specific things. Those yes. are like my favorite. Do you do you feel that a part of your oeuvre is you absorbing culture and then giving it back to people? Hmm. Because you're a filter for culture. That's interesting. And Amsam is a filter of mm. culture yeah. and a diaspora, but and giving it back to people in a different way. Yeah, that's, I've never thought about it like that. I think I absorb, I like am in culture. I feel made of the internet, right? Like I really yeah. feel like it's in my bones and in yeah. my DNA. Like a living aggregate. Yeah, and then I think what I put back is probably like me understanding, collecting, curating, and then I think layering on my values and my identity and my perspective and kind of putting it back out. I think that's what we do as artists, no? Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. When it came to the design aesthetic of Amsam, how did that come <laughs> alive? Yeah, so I did I, I did all the creative direction. Um, we were super inspired by fire and flame. One, it's like literally what we use for cooking. A lot of communities of color, especially in Asia, do open flame cooking. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted something that felt like rowdy and uncontrollable and chaos because so much of the 
fucking bullshit that Asian Americans are painted with is this like super calculated, super disciplined, quiet model minority, right? And so we're right. like, let's get bold, let's get in your face, let's the get model rowdy. model minority pieces. Yeah, yes. yeah. And then all of the colors are rooted in like Southeast Asian fruits and, and foods. So we have a banana flower, we have a mandarin, we have a ginger, we have a little tofu. Um, I just wanted nods to some of my Southeast Asian roots. Yeah. <laughs> How? What's the next step or what's the evolution of Amsam? I guess a brand because it feels like it's very mm. lifestyle. It's beyond food. Yeah. Thank and I'm sure you. that your fandom <laughs> acknowledges. Fandom. Oh. I mean, well, I think that you've said it and I believe it. The Asian category has traditionally been within a box. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think Amsam is doing a great job of breaking out of the box mm -hmm. and also where it's a brand. I mean, you're on a ton of mood boards. Let's acknowledge <laughs> that. You probably, yeah, like, the brand is on a ton of mood boards. <laughs> and there are a lot of copycats out there that have like taken <laughs> notice, right? Yeah. So, in terms of the lifestyle expansion of Amsam, you have a logo that looks, that could look dope almost anywhere. Like, yeah. what, what does it look like in the next five years? I think it's never losing our proud and loud roots, but maybe exploring new directions. Yeah. So something that I'm thinking a lot about um, as I think about the future of the brand, less so the kind of the products and distribution, which we can talk about that's more business focused. But when I think about the brand, I really kind of want to explore rowdier and go, I think rowdy for us has meant kind of very activist thus far, which I'm really proud of. And that's right. me living my values. I also think there's a, an evolution of rowdy that's just maybe a bit more fun and playful. We're very earnest and heart forward as a brand, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what it looks like to... An evolution of rowdy. Yeah. That's a great manifesto starter. <laughs> of like, what does it look like for Asian joy to be unbridled? Yeah. Like, what does it look like for us to really just crack open this idea of Asian American fun and pleasure and like that doesn't just have to be sexual and I think that obviously has a lot of parallel with my BDSM work but yeah what is it what does it look like for pleasure like yeah kind of unadulterated silly maybe playful pleasure hmm. and I I'm that's what I'm starting to kind of muse on as a as a brand thinker so beyond food yeah I wow. think so. yeah is a uh, can you sneak or like what categories would that be in I don't know I mean there's still definitely ways that we can like experience. Like food is a conduit of pleasure. It is a conduit. Food of is pleasure. a context for pleasure, right? Yeah. Like we eat together, then we go out. We have food at late night after the bar. We um, oh, that's so interesting. Like eat when we're drinking, when we're smoking, like right? If, like like if there was a build, <laughs> like a slide build <laughs> of like Amsam at the top, mm. and then uh, pleasure as mm. a as a line, like a lateral. And then food was a lateral under, mm. like if, if previously, if it was Amsam and then food, yeah. but then you put pleasure between yeah. Amsam and food, then it's, then Amsam is like a byproduct, like what sits mm. at the pleasure mark. And then, and then food is a vertical or it's like mm. a pillar. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what that looks like, um, yeah. but it's just something I've started to think about. It's like, I just want play. I want more play. I feel like sometimes, again, I don't, I don't want to approach I don't want to make Asian America a monolith because we're not. But right. sometimes I do feel like there's some guilt associated with play and pleasure, not just sexually, but just in ex self-expression, yeah. in dress, in in joy and connection and in intimacy and friendship. Like, I just I just want to like, what does it look like for Asian Americans to feel juicy? Like, I want us to feel juicy. What does that mean? Yeah. To and define, a, like, really to bring definition to a word. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. 
I, th I, th I think the idea, and also the re redefining, reclaiming a narrative and what Amsam literally the word is doing, what you just said about re like, what does it mean for an Asian to be juicy and contributing definitions into a nomenclature, mm. I think is the next level into mm. creating culture, right? Mm. Mm. Ooh, that was a... That was a lot. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh, hey, uh, I don't know. What, what is this podcast if not some sort of high-level therapy session for everyone involved? It's real. Oh, man. So, okay, a couple of questions. I have a couple of uh, speed speed runs. Okay, okay. Uh, for uh, a guest like you who has, I feel, you can throw a lot of interesting energy and stuff. <laughs> um, top three favorite beers. I don't drink beer. You don't drink beer? <laughs> I don't drink beer. Really? She's not a beer girl. Oh, interesting. In that Thrillist video, like when you're talking about that bar, like they were just like flashing photos of beers. Like, oh, okay, does she like beer? I'm more of a cocktail girl. Top three favorite cocktails? Um, a Boulevardier, a Hanky Panky, and a Sazerac. What is a Hanky Panky and a Sazerac? Uh, Sazerac is dependent. I like mine 50-50, so half bourbon, half rye. I like boozy, bitter cocktail. Okay. She's a boozy bitter hag, so <laughs> it makes sense. Um, Hanky Panky has fernet in it, which I love. That kind of like licorice. Oh, oh my god, <laughs> this is the this is where we don't align. <laughs> it's okay. We needed to learn this, Rich. We needed to learn this. <laughs> oh wow, you dig fernet? This is a specific taste. Yeah, it is. Yes, it's an acquired taste. It's an acquired taste. But as am I. So you know. Fair enough. Tracks. <laughs> and what was the last one? Um, a Boulevardier. Oh. Also boozy and bitter. Oh yeah, no, I love a Boulevardier. Yeah, I uh, I partnership with a whiskey brand, oh, um, cool. Russell's Reserve, and then oh, one cool. of their signature drinks is a Boulevardier with like a little bit of a twist. Yeah, cool. Awesome, love that. Uh, favorite person to eat with? My sister. Oh, okay. Oh my god, we nerd out. Okay. Um, I, I remember at one point her and I both had partners and they were like, eating with y'all is so fucking obnoxious. You're like, you pour over every word in the menu. As you're eating, you like editorialize. You're like, oh, I love the bite of lime. It hits really nicely with the, the crispy fat of the pork skin. And they're like, just fucking eat. We don't need to hear this whole thing. Like we could have a podcast on food alone. Like just me and Vanessa eating. How are you, how do you not actually? <laughs> no, but really though, how do you I have, not? I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just going back to the ASMR thing and then talking about mm, the food. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yo, there's really something there. I think there could be. Yeah. ASMR, <laughs> talking about food, verbalizing about the food, yeah. contributing to the definitions and the mm. nomenclature of Asian food. Yeah. yeah. And also going against taboos, because one of the taboos of, of audio is eating. Yeah. Interesting. The crunchy and the crispies and the texture and the juice. And Yo, the, the yeah. crunchy and the crispy is a hell of a podcast name. <laughs> I maybe started. Yo, is that the show? <laughs> the you know the, the uh, listening party. It's free to record here. Oh. And also, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, QSR mm. situation over there. That's true. Oh, that's actually a good idea. That's not a bad idea. Hmm. The crunchy and the crispy. Ooh. All right. Okay. Our branding minds are spinning right now. Yeah, I can yeah. See it. Okay. There's, there's a, there's a deck to be made. <laughs> um, I love that. Okay. So. If you could be the head of a restaurant, head chef of a restaurant, which one would it be? Monsieur Vo in the East Village. Chef okay. Jimmy Lee just opened it up. Stellar Vietnamese food that's pushing the boundaries of kind of tradition, which I love. I'm a big fan of letting Asian American chefs and creators do whatever the fuck we want with our own food and our own flavors. Mm -hmm. I'm less a fan of that when it's done by palm colored folks who don't want to um, honor uh, like 
some of the, the, the roots of the food. But I love when kind of Asian chefs or chefs of color are doing that with their own communities. Love that. So you want that person's job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Top three favorite movies. Okay, okay. Whew. All right. Um, Grandma's Boy, because I love silly slapstick stoner humor. Grandma's Boy. Is that it's like, is Adam Sandler? No, but no. it's like that community of like, okay. I, don't, I don't know the names of the actors in it, but I just saw it at a young age and was just like, this is so silly and I love it. Okay. Um, I don't really like watch a ton of movies. You have uh, a MCU podcast. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, 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 God. Okay. Um, uh, Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok. I'm going to oh, toss up there. Yeah, no, that's a great movie. Oh, well, okay. Grandma's Boy was done by Adam Sandler's company. Okay. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Has his players in it. Yes. And re as of late, Minari, the A24 film, that shit fucked yeah. me all the way Yo, up. A24 Be doing is it. Doing killing it. it. I recently yeah. partnered with them to do some work on the Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah. I did a bit of um, social campaign work mm. for the album mm. that, like with David Byrne mm. and Mitski yeah. um, and Sun Lux yeah. and uh, they were, it was an interesting partnership I just it was one of those things where even if this was hard I would do it again because mm. it's A24 yeah you know yeah that's cool yeah. and what was the third movie? Minari. Oh, yeah. Minari. Minari oh. Thor Ragnarok. Oh, and, and Grandma's Boy, Boy. <laughs> just multitudes she contains multitudes multitudes uh, what's your perfect Saturday? Um, waking up not hungover. Mm-hmm. Was that true today? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she keeps it real. Um, I think a nice walk in the park, getting some either Xi'an Famous Foods or Mala Project. Okay. Um, hanging out in the park with some friends, going Which home. Park? Prospect or McCarran? Oh, McCarran, yeah. yeah. They have and a little bar situation. Yeah. Or? And then maybe going home for like a little nap, watch some silly TV. And then go get dinner at like when when. Mm -hmm. um, Eric said is fucking magic. And then dancing, no, drink nice cocktails at a nice cocktail bar, and then dancing somewhere silly. Oh, interesting. Like Mood Room or Pony Boy. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, I Mood did that Room. Last yeah. Time. I actually did that. Oh, last really? Time. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, favorite TikTok trend of the past three years. <gasps> um. I don't know if it's a trend, but there's this one creator on TikTok. She has like a little, like, Chihuahua dog, and she she calls. Do you know she calls him like Munty? She's like she's okay. I don't know. It's like a little dog. Just Maybe your algorithm's different from mine. <laughs> animals, animals. I love animal TikTok. Okay. Yeah, I love yeah. animals. All right. <laughs> uh, favorite last episode of a TV show. As in, like the the end, the last episode, the very last finale episode. Has there ever been a good? There were some good ones. There were some good ones. I don't... Mm. Like, the end of Breaking Bad was a good one. Mm. That was a satisfying one. Um, I liked... Okay, I mean, this, was, this is kind of an unfair. It could I be liked, a new show, too. I liked... This is not the last episode, but I liked the last episode with um, Michael Scott in The Office. I thought that was a really beautiful... Oh, I did yeah. not like the okay. series finale sure. of The Office, but I loved the last episode that he's in. That's a good sidestep. Yeah. Real good sidestep. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so last question. Okay. Actually, no, one before. Okay. What's, a, what's your hangover cure? Before we talk about it. Oh, okay. Liquid IV with some water and then a chopped cheese from my deli with sazon, mayo, lettuce, tomato, and cheese. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay, final question. What's your last meal ever? Okay, so I've thought about this many times. I'm sure you have. This is actually my, f 
a classic first date question because how you answer this tells me everything I need to know about you. If you say some shit like uh, filet mignon with mashed potatoes. <laughs> oh God, that's not my I'm last like, meal. I'm like, bye. I'm like so bored by that. Yeah. So it's three courses. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm gonna okay. It's three courses. First <laughs> that's course. That's why I asked you this question. First course is all wings from Boca in the East Village. Korean fried chicken. It is. I've eaten Korean fried chicken all around, all over the world, including in Korea. Boca in the East Village does it the best. All spicy, all wings, and ideally all flats. What is your spice tolerance? Very high. Could you do the hot wings challenge? Yes. Really? Or the hot wings challenge? Yeah. You think you could do it? Yes. I like have a stupid high heat tolerance. Have you tried like the one chip challenge? Have you done that? No. The ghost pe- oh, like um, you know how Sean does an aside. You know how Sean Evans will do the one chip challenge mm. with uh, uh, like pocky chips. Oh. And it has the go. It's a ghost pepper mm. infused single chip. And I've done it, and I wanted to die. die. I wanted to die. <laughs> like I, I, I couldn't. I mean, understand. I have a heat toler- high heat tolerance, but I don't like to. I'm not. I don't. I'm not like a masochist. masochist. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a masochist about it. I like heat when there's and it serves a purpose. Yes. Like in a lot of like Thai oh, and Vietnamese food. When heat serves a purpose. Yeah. But yeah. people who are just like, I want to like torch my. I'm like that. Like that doesn't thrill. excite me. That doesn't excite me. Yeah. So yeah, spicy flats from Boca in the East Village yes. fried chicken. Don't want this like sweet. No, just only spicy. My second meal course, I guess, is uh, my mom's Vietnamese boiled pork belly with a side of steamed cabbage, rice, and some fish sauce. Super simple. And then this is, you're going to laugh at this. My last course would be dessert. And it would be a slice of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> I'm not laughing at that at all. I love that. Because, okay, objectively, there's probably better cheesecake than the Cheesecake Factory. But growing up, the Cheesecake Factory was it's like... about the familiarity? Yes. It the was nostalgia? This, yeah. It was like this The really, high ceilings? Yeah. The, the menu that's a magazine? That's a novel? Yeah. It just was like fancy <laughs> was for my ads. family. It was like, it, if we went to the Cheesecake Factory, it was like, you know, a nice meal. And so I think... Yeah. I associate that. It's at the mall. Such a luxury. I can go to Barnes and Noble. I can look at magazines and then go eat. Yeah. So that I would be it. I love Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> I haven't been in a while. Yeah. But I had COVID either. earlier this year and I made their Cajun chicken pasta <laughs> and it was fire. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Guilty pleasure. Multitudes again. Amazing. Kim, this has been so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much. This is so fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I need to come back so that we can start the crispy and the crunchy. Uh, <laughs> yo, well, you know what? I'm actually thinking very practically right now. In theory, we could shoot like three. We could do three episodes of that. We could, sh- you could do it here. <laughs> it doesn't have to food. be that long. You could really. You could just do like a batch record, <laughs> and then just do three episodes. Like refresh your palate. Ooh, I'm gonna talk to Vanessa about this. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Tell our listeners how they can find you and also where they can find Amsam. Yeah, for sure. So you can find Amsam online at Amsam.com and at Amsam on all the platforms. Um, You can also find us physically at every single Whole Foods in the nation. And then as for me, I'm just at Kim of the Internet on all platforms. You can find me um, on TikTok. That's where I do most of my BDSM content. Um, And then, yeah, Kim of the Internet.com. She's an Internet girly, you know? Kim, thank you so much. Thank you, boo. Shout out to Kim Fan for stopping by. That was an amazing conversation. So much fun. Best way to start the season. That said, you can find the First Generation Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps the algorithm. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden, one word. And also you can find me, your host, at rich underscore to you on most social media platforms. Thanks to Timothy Simonson for production. Shout out to Gym Class Heroes. 
Thanks to the Desgen team for their support. Thanks to you, the listener. This season, we're dropping on Mondays, just as usual, 12 episodes. We're going for it. And new episode next week. Be safe, everyone. <laughs>